Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. How just is the criminal justice system? It's a question more and more people are confronting as America continues to maintain the highest incarceration rate in the world, even as crime rates continue a decades-long decline. I'm Keith Manconi. This is In Depth, and today on the program, we're going to be speaking with Emily Bazelon, who is a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine and teaches at Yale Law School. Her new book is Charged, the New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration. And as the title suggests, her work puts prosecutors right at the center of the story of American mass incarceration, arguing that their power to determine charges and decide plea deals means their influence is often greater than even that of the judges they face in court. She joins us now to discuss her work. Uh, Emily Bazelon, thank you for being on In Depth. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I think it's fair to say that criminal justice is enjoying, criminal justice reform is enjoying something of a moment right now. We've seen a lot of reform efforts at the state level. And then late last year on the federal level, we also saw the First Step Act, which, among other things, uh, reduces the sentences for some federal prisoners. But legislative change is not the focus of your work. Instead, you're focusing on the role of the modern prosecutor. Why put our attention there? Yes, great question. If you go back about 40 years, you find that the United States had about the same number of people or the same rate of incarceration as Scandinavia. And then you see a crime rise and a real turn among politicians towards scaring voters about crime. And in response, you see the passage of a lot of what we call mandatory minimum sentences. So that means that like, you get accused of robbery and the prosecutor says the at least you're going to get three years in prison. We passed those mandatory sentences in large part to take discretion out of the system. We wanted to tie the hands of softy judges and also just make punishment more consistent and even-handed. What we didn't talk about is that what we were actually doing was transferring discretion from judges to prosecutors. And the reason for that is once you have a mandatory sentence, then the punishment is actually baked into the charge that you bring. It's prosecutors who control those charges. And it's also prosecutors who control plea bargaining, which mandatory sentences induced more and more of. Uh, and as a result of the rise in plea bargaining, we now have a system in which something upwards of 95% of convictions happen through plea bargains and not trials. So I think you can see in all of this that the role of judges has really been diminished. And judges are the neutral referees in our system. That's their job. Prosecutors are obligated to do justice, but they're also obligated to win convictions. They are not neutral. 
So that's a fundamental shift that goes with their rise in power. And one other point to make is that charging and plea bargaining happen in secret. They're not in open court. There's no transcript. There's no record of the reasons that prosecutors make their decisions. And so that's another way in which this shift to prosecutors has really transformed our criminal justice system without our talking about it very much. And remind our listeners who don't necessarily follow criminal justice, uh, the ins and outs and all of all that, plea bargaining is the vast majority of the way that criminal cases get resolved. Is that right? Yes. That's what I meant when I said that more than 95% of convictions are obtained through plea bargaining. Plea bargaining is the system. It's not like next to the system. And I think sometimes because we see a lot of trials in the news because they're exciting or on television because they make good drama, we forget about the fact that the reality in criminal court is this secret haggling between prosecutors and defense lawyers with judges as more or less a rubber stamp. And a lot of what I see my role as um, as a journalist is to stand there in criminal court and just show you what's happening because most people don't have the time or inclination to go themselves. And you did a lot of that in this book. That was a lot of the reporting that went into this work. And I uh, want to get to that in a second. But another one of the points that you made, and it, it's, I suppose, a very obvious point, but I found it a very uh, helpful reminder, is the fact that trial by jury is enshrined in the Constitution. I mean, that is really how the framers conceived of this whole system working. Exactly. I think... That is a crucial point to make, that in the founding of the country, right there, number six in the Bill of Rights, it says trial by jury. There's nothing about plea bargaining. And yet that system that the framers designed and that we tend to take so much pride in, it just really does not exist for the vast majority of people. Now, let's talk a little bit about uh, prosecutors and how they see their role. You interviewed a lot of prosecutors. You saw them go about their work. Obviously, prosecutors have a lot of different considerations to balance as uh, as they do their job. Uh, but based on your reporting, it does seem like sometimes the the need to get a conviction is eclipsing other imperatives. Is that some of what you observed? Yes. No. Look, most prosecutors go into the job bent on public service with strong sense of ethics and uh, an upstanding notion of their role. But you have to think about people's incentives. And we've traditionally had a system in which prosecutors are rewarded for winning convictions and getting heavy sentences. In some offices, it's very explicit. So I reported on the prosecutor's office in Memphis. They have a hammer award. You get this picture of a hammer put up on your door as an honor when you win a big trial or get a heavy sentence sentence. And so you can see in that that there is this clear sense of what is really of value in a prosecutor's office. And it's not being apt to decline charges or, you know, give someone a deal because there are reasons to think that they're not really at fault. It's to throw the book at them. Mm. Um, Other work from other scholars have also pointed to the key role that prosecutors have played. Would you say, how how should we think about their role in contributing to the degree that mass incarceration grew to through the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s? Well, let's start with the number where we've now arrived at. We have more than 2 million people in jail and prison. We have another 10 million people a year who churn through the jails. These are short stays, but they can really wreck people's lives. We have... Another 10 million kids who will have a parent who's incarcerated by the time they're 18, that has a huge throw-off cost onto those children. 
How do we get here? So one way of thinking about the prosecutor's role is to recognize that the sheer number of prosecutors in the country nearly doubled in the 90s and early 2000s. You have more prosecutors, they're going to bring more charges. And then another key finding, and this is from a law professor at Fordham named John Pfaff, is that the rate at which prosecutors brought felony charges, the serious kind, doubled in this same time period. And so you go from seeing prosecutors choose felonies about a third of the time to two thirds of the time. That means that people are facing heavier prison sentences that then induce them to plead guilty. It all keeps the system moving. The kind of wheels are greased to deal with this heavy volume of cases. But it also means lots more people ending up in jail and prison. And that decision on the part of prosecutors, again, largely stems from uh, the incentives that are presented to them? Yeah. So if you're a prosecutor and you have a choice, a, a menu of options, which you often do have, what kind of charge you're going to bring? You could choose a misdemeanor. Say someone breaks and enters into an empty dwelling, doesn't encounter anyone, but gets caught. Nobody's hurt. Even though nobody got hurt, you could charge that crime as a violent felony with, say, a three-year mandatory minimum prison sentence. Or you could say, well, this isn't that big a deal. Let's charge as a misdemeanor. If you start at the top think how, and you can threaten three years in prison, think how much more likely someone will be to plead guilty. And so that's why prosecutors almost always bring the most serious charges. And the story of how uh, prosecutors came to take on this role, is this really a story that begins in the 80s? Remember in your book, you referred to a number of uh, Supreme Court cases that were decided in such a way that uh, they did accrue some somewhat more power. What, what is the time frame that we should think of here? Well, when you bring in the role of the Supreme Court, and I'm glad you mentioned it because they do play an important role, we're talking about the late 70s. It's mm-hmm. kind of part of what started the momentum, where then you mm-hmm. see the numbers go up starting in the 80s. So a, one key Supreme Court decision is from 1978. It's called borden Kircher versus Hayes. Nobody's heard of it. I hadn't heard of it before I started this reporting. What happened in borden Kircher versus Hayes was that Paul Hayes, he was grooming horses in Kentucky, not making very much money, had a bunch of younger brothers and sisters to support. He passed an $88 bad check to buy groceries. The prosecutor said, plead guilty, we'll give you five years in prison. Paul Hayes said, I want to go to trial. The prosecutor said, wait a second, you have a criminal history. If you make us take this case to trial, we're going to charge this bad check as your third strike, and you'll get a life sentence if you're convicted. And Hayes decided to gamble on this trial anyway. He got that life sentence for an $88 bad check. He appealed to the Supreme Court for mercy. And basically, his lawyer made the best argument he could think of, which was to say, this is such a giant threat. It is burdening Paul Hayes's constitutional right to a trial to a point that should be unconstitutional. Mm. And the Supreme Court said, sorry, no. And essentially um, entertain this fiction that prosecutors and defendants are on an equal playing field. They're both bargaining. That was the idea here. And so what the upshot of this case means is that there are no constitutional limits on what a prosecutor can threaten during plea bargaining. And that's another reason why we've seen plea bargaining take over the whole system. I guess this is a good moment to also just dwell on the fact that from the prosecutor's point of view, plea bargaining is an important tool to resolve cases or I I suppose in some cases also retain a conviction when they feel somebody's guilty, but perhaps other charges are not quite where they, you know, the evidence isn't quite there to sustain other charges. So from the prosecutor's point of view, it's a useful tool, correct? Absolutely. I am not arguing that the American system should eliminate plea bargaining. We are so dependent on it. It's like impossible to imagine that. But should there be any limits on it? Do 
we really want a system in which we have 2% of convictions happening through trials? In addition to the issues we've been talking about, the problem with that reality is that the government never has to prove its case. So, for example, imagine that the police make an illegal stop. They arrest someone, but they did it for no reason. It's illegal. You can see on the videotape they just, like, stop someone, found some drugs. Our system is supposed to say that that evidence doesn't get to be used against the defendant and that that's an important check on police power. Well, if you never go to trial, you never find out any of that. Mm. Right. And uh, once that conviction is there, the presumption of innocence is just gone. And the whole, in the eyes of the law, you are guilty, you committed that crime. Right. And it's, let me, sorry. And let me just add one more point about this. We imagine that innocent people don't plead guilty, so all of Mm. this is okay. It's not true. We know that in the hundreds of exonerations that have taken place, that 18% of them were people who pled guilty. Those are people like Paul Hayes who didn't do it, but are facing such heavy penalties that they're afraid to roll the dice and go to trial. Well, actually, that was a point that I wanted to ask you about. What should our mental image of some of the injustices that you're identifying, what should our mental image be? Should it largely be people that were innocent people that were coerced into a guilty plea or people that were guilty of some crime that ended up pleading to much greater penalties than perhaps our gut sense of justice thinks is right? We should worry about both those kinds of people because they're both out there. You know, I think for a lot of people, the nightmare of an innocent person going to prison is particularly disturbing. And we should worry about that. That happens. It is also true that we have such disproportionate punishment in the United States right now. And what I mean by that is that if you think about the idea that jail and prison should be um, protecting public safety, we've just gone way, way beyond what we need to do to deter crime. And to we also have jails and prisons that do not prepare people well to come back. Almost everybody who goes to jail and prison is going to come back into the community. We do not have a a penal system that really makes people in good shape to be productive citizens when they come out. Instead, we have a system in which they often don't get any kind of education or counseling while they're in prison. Then they come out. It's harder to get a job, harder to get housing. They may have their family ties kind of frayed because prisons and jails tend to be far away from the communities where people live. So for a variety of reasons, we've created this counterproductive system. And there's this term I think is useful, a little technical, but it's criminogenic. So carcinogenic means things that cause cancer. Criminogenic means things that cause more crime. And jail and prison are criminogenic. People come out and they are more likely, not less likely, to be a danger by committing more crimes. Hmm. And I think that some of the reporting that uh, we're about to talk about bears some of that out. So let's uh, jump into that in just a second. But first, I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to KCBS's In-Depth. This week, we are speaking with Emily Bazelon, who is a staff writer for The New York Times Magazine and also teaches at Yale Law School. Her new book is Charged, The New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration. So like I've been uh, hinting at all along, uh, a lot of the reporting that you did illustrate some of the dynamics that you're describing here. Uh, You followed along a a number of defendants as they kind of worked their way through the criminal justice system. Uh, Two were featured most prominently. I want to start with one of those, uh, a young African-American man from Brooklyn charged with illegal gun possession. Uh, And in that case, he had the opportunity for diversion 
he did not go to jail. Tell, uh, or well, actually, I should say, he did not go to prison. Tell me a little bit about what diversion meant for him. Uh, first, tell our listeners what diversion is, and then what it meant for him. Sure. So the idea behind a diversion program is that you're diverting people from jail and prison. You're punishing them or providing consequences for them that still impact them, but don't involve locking them up. So Kevin gets to this kind of crossroads in his case. Kevin, um, the pseudonymous Kevin. Yeah, exactly. I uh, didn't give the real name for Kevin because he asked me to protect his privacy and safety. So Kevin gets to a crossroads with his case where he's offered a deal. If he pleads guilty, he'll get a two-year prison sentence, but that prison sentence will effectively be suspended while he's given an opportunity to go through a diversion program. It's a year long, mostly involves working with a social worker. There are requirements like curfew and drug testing, and you have to get a job, and you have to make some progress in your education. For in, his, in his case, that involved getting a GED. If he is successful in completing the diversion program, then he doesn't have to go to prison, and the charges against him are dismissed and sealed. So it's a really valuable opportunity, and it's one that is provided that's very unusual. I honestly couldn't find another program like this in the whole country where the the DA's office, the district attorney's office in Brooklyn, runs this program, and they're working with people who are convicted violent felons. That's a politically risky thing to do. Once we imagine people to be in that category, the district attorney's office worries, like, if something goes wrong, if Kevin, while he's in this program, hurts someone, that could really blow up on them politically and destroy the whole program. But they are willing to take this risk, and they've had really good results in terms of the re-offending rate of the people who complete this program. And I think that that, and what I mean by that is that they've had good results in that very few people who complete this program re-offend. And I think what you see there is that when we take a bet on people, and we're talking mostly about young men, most of them low income, most of them black, when we take a bet on them and there's this real effort to follow through and the sense um, that I try to show by telling Kevin's story in my book, he's working with the social worker, it becomes a close relationship and there's this sense that Kevin's fate matters to someone and that he has this place he can go to talk. Like, so, for example, his best friend is killed tragically during the year that he's in this program. He has someone with therapeutic skills to go and talk to about it. I think all those things really did make a difference in Kevin's life. And when I think about how he's doing now versus what would have happened if he'd gone to prison, it just seems like a profound difference. And a lot of that difference, as you said, came from this program. And this program came from Eric Gonzalez, who was uh, the first Latino to serve uh, as Brooklyn's district attorney. So I suppose this would be an example of a DA really making a big influence on the outcome of a given case. Yes, I think that's fair to say. And Eric Gonzalez ran on a progressive platform and has in office made a big promise, which is to make jail and prison a last resort. That's a way of really changing the whole narrative of how we think about punishment and what locking up is what locking people up is really for, what the purpose of it is. And Gonzalez has done some other interesting things. Just recently, he told his prosecutors that as a general rule, rather than asking for long sentences of probation, which often trip people up, he was going to ask for the minimum possible term. 
Uh, that's another important element of the system. I think we don't talk enough about this court mandated supervision where you have an average of like 20 conditions you have to apply to comply with. And there are things like you can't go to a bar or you have to be home every night at a certain time. These are not things that are, make sense. They, they're not um, they're not consistent with adulthood as we know it. Right. Like think what it would be like is if you could get hauled into jail every time you were out past nine o'clock at night for five years. Hmm. Anyway, that's another um, important change. I think Gonzalez and certain other prosecutors are trying to make. Right. Even once you're uh, in the program, they can be difficult to, to navigate. And uh, as you showed at a number of points, it, it seems like being successful or not successful was by happenstance. Yes. I picked someone who I was reporting on in real time, and I wanted this to be a story not about like the kid who gets a gold star, mm -hmm. but a very typical defendant going through this program. And I had no idea as I was watching what was going to happen. It was a kind of nail-biting um, but really absorbing reporting experience. Yeah. The other uh, individual that you reported on extensively that I want to touch on briefly before we get to the broader movement that this is all taking place in the context of uh, is Nora Jackson. She's a teenager from Memphis who uh, is, was accused of murdering her mother. She actually got a trial by jury, but uh, your reporting highlights some of the questionable prosecutorial practices that were used in her case. Yeah, so Nora was 18 when her mother was brutally stabbed to death in the middle of the night. It was a terrible crime. Um, this is a white family in a middle-class neighborhood in Memphis. That's the kind of crime there's a lot of pressure to solve. There were no obvious suspects. The DNA went off to the lab for testing. And in the meantime, suspicion starts to swirl around Nora, largely because she was out partying the night her mother was killed, and there were a couple hours in the middle of the night that she couldn't account for. She also had lost her father a year and a half earlier, so she didn't have any parents who were looking out for her. So she gets charged with her mother's death. She is convicted at her trial. And then years later, after she has spent a long time in prison, the Tennessee, the Tennessee Supreme Court ruled that the prosecutor in her case, Amy Wyrick, had in two um, serious ways violated Nora's constitutional rights. Wyrick and her assistant at the trial had withheld evidence of Nora's that could have helped Nora prove her innocence. And then Wyrick also violated Nora's right not to testify. So we all have this right also in the Constitution. You don't have to speak at your own trial if you don't want to. And it can seem counterintuitive, like, why wouldn't you want to explain? But it's very standard for defense lawyers to advise our clients not to testify, especially a young woman who is really struggling um, at this point in her life. And so even though Nora hadn't testified, at the very end, in this key moment in the closing argument, Amy Weirich says, just tell us where you were, Nora, in front of the jury, as if Nora had cast herself um, under suspicion by not accounting for her whereabouts. So anyway, for those two reasons, her conviction was overturned. But this is really a story of prosecutorial overreach and misconduct. It's an unusual story, but it's very vivid. And I wanted people to experience what it is like to go through this harrowing experience if you're someone like Nora. Yeah, and I thought I found this reporting uh, very helpful just because uh, you referred to John Pfaff earlier and a point that he made uh, in, in his book, Locked In, was that 
we oftentimes think about the cost to society of the crime, but we don't necessarily think about the cost to society of the punishment, whether it's the, pun the, the cost that's exacted upon the defendant themselves or whether it's the cost of their family members from taking them out of society. And I think that the reporting that you did helps us understand a little bit what folks are bearing as they go through the criminal justice system. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think you're absolutely right in that we often only think about crime when something terrible happens. And so we make a lot of policy based on the worst crimes. What we miss is the huge cost of overpunishment. So all those people whose lives are disrupted and ruined by going to jail and prison, maybe they're innocent, maybe they just don't need to be punished to that extent. There's an enormous cost from all of that, but it's relatively invisible. It's not the same thing as someone getting murdered in the middle of the night. And so I think we miss it, even though if we were being rational, we would see that that cost is actually overwhelming. Mm. Now, skeptics hearing about all this might think to themselves, well, is the problem here really so much that the criminal justice system isn't working? Or is the problem that America has a crime problem and the criminal justice system is responding to that? Obviously, we have seen a decline, a continuous decline over decades in the crime rate. But that crime rate is still much higher than it was in the 1960s. And America still has uh, relatively more crime, uh, violent crime compared to other developed nations. So what do you say to those concerns that if we are taking away some of these resources or these tools from prosecutors, that they may not be able to uh, exact the crime reductions that people would like to see? I would ask people to be um, open to the idea that so for sure, public safety is a hugely important goal. It should be the most important goal in this conversation. The question is, what strategies really get us there? We have learned a lot more about preventing crime than we knew at a time like the 1960s. And one of the most important insights is that law enforcement is really only a small part of the picture. So we think about the police and the courts kind of naturally in this conversation, but we should also be thinking about the evidence that what matters the most is the social cohesion of a neighborhood. And mm. what I mean by that is like a place where you want to live, where people are looking out for each other, where there are good schools, where there are health services, where there are playgrounds that attract people that bring foot traffic to the streets. All of those have we actually can show that there's a this is a finding from another um, professor in New York named Patrick Sharkey. Patrick Sharkey, he looked at communities all over the country and he found that adding one more nonprofit organization to a community actually caused a 1% drop in the murder rate. So that seems kind of crazy. But once you understand the ways in which there are all these elements of creating a good society and a good neighborhood that contribute to making it safer, it starts to seem really short-sighted to be focused only on prosecutors and police and like a real misallocation of resources to be putting all our money into locking people up instead of creating good neighborhoods. Mm. Do you think that there is a tension between deincarceration, reducing penalties, and crime reduction? Can we, if if we do reduce those penalties, do we need to accept some level of increase in crime? That's a great question. So in New York City, a few years ago, uh, the mayor pulled way back on stop and frisk. Right, this was this controversial tactic in New York of stopping and searching lots and lots of people. The police were totally attached to it. 
pretty much everyone expected a crime bump. So if you were in favor of curbing stop and frisk, you said, okay, well, crime's going to rise, but this is worth it because it's such a problem for our civil liberties. You know what? Crime has continued to drop in New York City. So I'm really skeptical of this notion that with our current hugely ballooned over-incarceration rate, that bringing it down is necessarily going to cause an increase in crime. Now, am I arguing that nobody should be in jail and prison and that, like, no deterrent effect comes from locking people up? No, I am not arguing that. That would be silly. But the notion that we have ballooned so far out of proportion that we could bring the incarceration rate down a tremendous amount before seeing an increase in crime, yes, I do think the evidence supports that. All right. The last point that I want to touch on before uh, we wrap things up is uh, the movement is part of the title. You were talking about a movement of prosecutors or reform-minded individuals that are hoping to see change in this space. So let's talk a little bit about that movement and what it looks like. Here in California, we recently actually had a number of reform-minded prosecutors running for office. Um, Some of the most high-profile ones, uh, races took place in Sacramento, in Alameda County, in San Diego, uh, and also in Contra Costa County. But many of those challengers actually lost. I think the only successful one was in Contra Costa County. That was uh, Diana Becton. So Clearly, the will is there on the part of a lot of people that are are, are trying to make this happen. A lot of uh, funding came in to support these candidates. But uh, as, as we saw right there, the votes weren't there. So tell us a little bit about what this picture looks like right now. Yeah. So California is not typical of this movement in that in many states and other races, uh, candidates making these progressive promises did win. And they were big victories for local organizers, for civil rights groups. And the idea here is to like rise up and take over the DA's office and to have communities of color and low income people who are the most impacted by the criminal justice system use their votes to really change how it works. So it's a movement that has succeeded in places like Philadelphia and Chicago and St. Louis and Boston. It didn't work out so well in California. And California has other mechanisms for changing the system that have been more effective, like Mm. ballot initiatives Mm -hmm. and legislation. So that's all interesting to watch. I think um, one thing to keep in mind if you're from San Francisco is that there's an open DA race here and L.A. will be up for grabs in 2020. That's a huge place. So lots of people would be affected by a change in the DA there. And, you know, one of the main messages I about my book is like a super just civics lesson message, which is Mm. that local voters have the power to elect their local district attorney. Lots of people don't know that, which I understand. It can seem um, a little obscure. There's so many things to vote on. There's so many things to vote on. But I would... Look, if my book could accomplish one thing, it would be for people to think of the district attorney the way we think of the mayor, someone who reflects our values and who we get to decide who that person is. Prosecutors have so much power, but in the end, their power is our power. Yeah. Well, uh, very lastly, uh, I just want to bring up uh, one of the assertions that you made or or one of the potential uh, prognostications, I suppose, is that you have the feeling that we may look back at this moment of mass incarceration as a blot on our national character that almost rises to the level of slavery. Um, Tell us a little bit what you, you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, it's a big claim. We know slavery as the tremendous evil of our country's history. The reason I made that claim, I guess there are two reasons. One is that over-incarceration is causing so much unnecessary suffering in so many parts of our society, and I want us to reckon with that and to really 
see it vividly. And another reason I brought up slavery is that there is so much racial disparity. It's just infects every part of our system. In so many ways, black and brown people are punished more harshly than white people for the same behavior. You see that over and over again when you start looking at the criminal justice system. And so, again, I think that's something we need to reckon with. All right. We'll let that stand as the closing point. We have been speaking today to Emily Bazelon, who is a staff writer for The New York Times Magazine and teaches at Yale Law School. Her new book is Charged, the new movement to transform American prosecution and end mass incarceration. Emily Bazelon, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to In Depth, a production of KCBS Radio. You can catch past episodes online on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In Depth, I'm Keith Manconi, and I'll see you next time. You've just heard KCBS In Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 1069. KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 